Well, if you uh, turn to Colossians chapter 3, um, it's a request tonight. Andy, uh, Andy Nicholson asked on Sunday uh, if tonight we could do Colossians 3. Um, he's not here, he's ill. Um, so it's sort of like hot off the press. Um, but first of all, let's let's read the um, the chapter. We're going to go a little bit into chapter 4 as well, so I'll read from uh, Colossians 3. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarians, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness and patience. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues put on love which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom, and as you sing psalms, hymns and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Wives, <clears throat> submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, 
Obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not embitter your children, or they will become discouraged. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything, and do it not only when their eye is on you and to win their favour, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for his wrong, and there is no favouritism. Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair, because you know that you also have a master in heaven. Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. And pray for us too, that God may open a door for our message, so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ, for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. Be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Now, there's a pattern in this letter that Paul is following, and when we get to his letters um, in the Bible survey as we proceed through it, we'll actually see that it's a kind of a pattern that he uses for more than just this one. And basically what he does is in chapters 1 and 2, he's kind of concentrated on establishing exactly what it is that Jesus has done for us. So he covers that through Jesus' death on the cross that we're forgiven our sins and you know that we become one in him. And what happens is that he then passes from having established that, because of what Jesus has done, because this is what is true of you now, because of what Jesus has done and because you were born again and because therefore you have the life of God himself within you, therefore this is how it works out in daily practice. And hence you get, since then you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on the things above. Now, when he says this, uh, and he says, um, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, set your mind on the things above, not on earthly things. Notice, he says, first of all, set your hearts on the things above. So there's our you know, emotions and will tied up. But he says, set your mind on the things above as well. Because, you know, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. It's the truth. It's, it's believing what is true, what the Bible tells us is true. And of course, when it talks about this, because we're raised up with Jesus, set your mind on the things above, it's not saying, for instance, we should be going around thinking about the throne on which God is sitting, or we should be going around thinking about, you know, sort of like the temple in heaven, or going around thinking about the new Jerusalem. When it's talking about set your heart on things above, it's not actually talking about the things in heaven which are one day going to be on earth. These things above, which we're supposed to set our hearts and minds on, is the life and the characteristics of God in heaven. It's the way of life 
that heaven is all about. And therefore, these things above that we're to think of is this Christian way of behaving that he elucidates in the rest of the chapter. It's not that, you know, we go around all the time thinking about heaven, the things above. That's not the point. Um, there's um, a little spider and uh, it lives underwater, but it's an air breather. And what it does is, although it lives underwater, it, it can only survive with air. And what this spider is able to do, it can go to the top of the pond and it can use its tentacles, or no, its tentacles, its feet and legs, and it traps a bubble of air and then it goes back down to the bottom of the pond and it lives off of the air that it's trapped from above. And when that air bubble is running low, up it goes again, gets another one and drags it back down. So although its environment is the pond, its source of life is the air above. Now that's what Paul is talking about here. That although we live in the world, and it's a fallen world, and it's a sinful world, the source of the life that we live is above, because it's the life of God himself, and God lives in heaven. And so when Paul is talking about set your hearts on these things, what he's talking about is, you've got to be bringing heaven down to earth in the way that you live. And we can do that for the simple reason that God's very nature has been given to us because we're born again. Because of everything Jesus has done, we have the very nature of Jesus himself. And for that reason, we can live lives that are more heavenly than earthly, by which we're meaning the way we behave. When Jesus walked the earth, involved in all the earthly things of his life, he was living a heavenly life. That's the point. Jesus wasn't walking around on the earth all the time thinking about heaven. I mean, he thought about heaven a lot because it was his home. It's where he'd come from. But the point was, he was living the life of God out in the world. And that is what Paul is talking about here. And he says, you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And what you... In doing John's Gospel, we saw, for instance, when Jesus was praying in John 17, that you have this, this, this kind of thing, you know, Jesus praying for the disciples, that, that they in me and I in you, Father. And what's, I mean, Jesus' life is wrapped up with the Father's life, and, and, and he talks about he's in us and, and we're in him. And this idea of, of you know, sort of like, uh, you know, your life is hidden now with Christ in God. It's a bit like the Russian dolls. You get a doll and you open it up and there's another one inside. You open it up and there's another one inside. And of course, what's happened because of everything that Jesus has done is that we, we've died to sin. We, we died to sin with Jesus on the cross. That's what our baptism is all about. We go down into the, that watery grave and we say, the old, you know, for me, the old Beresford is dead and gone in Jesus. And I've been raised up. I came out of the waters, raised up to a new life. And that's the life of Jesus. And we died to sin. And it's like, I've, I've been put in Jesus, all right, and Jesus has been put in the Father. And it's almost like a double security there. You can't get closer to God than that. God the Father is God. Jesus, the Son of God, is God. And we've been put in Jesus, and Jesus is in the Father. And it's sort of like, you know, you're wrapped up in Jesus, and Jesus is wrapped up in the Father. That's how close we are to God. That is the oneness that we have. And that's our safety as well. 
you know I mean sort of Jesus said none none can pluck them out of my hands and you know he says that you know the father is greater than I and one of the reasons that no one can pluck us out of Jesus's hands is because no one can even get to Jesus's hands because Jesus is is in the father and and so we've got the double security not only are we in Jesus and that's safe enough but we're in Jesus who is in the father so I mean that's that's as safe as you can get and he says when Christ who is your life appears then you also will appear with him in glory and this is talking about the rapture and of course we know that when Jesus does appear again and raptures the church that's when we get a glorified body then we will be fully like Jesus because then our bodies will have been transformed or if we've died you know sort of like before the rapture then we'll be in heaven without a body come with Jesus at the rapture and then get a body but we get a body that is sinless and glorified just like his and therefore we will then be sharing his nature and his holiness 100% and so what Paul is saying look one day we are going to be 100% like Jesus therefore because Jesus lives in us although one day we're going to be 100% like him in this life down here we still ought to be substantially like him and that's the point one day we'll be fully what we are because we'll be delivered from our sinful nature completely but in the meantime we can still be substantially as Jesus wants us to be because we've still got the divine nature within us when we were born again we got a new nature and so he said about that you know we'll appear with Jesus in glory we'll be glorified just like him and that's why he says put to death therefore and so he's saying because all this is the truth about us the truth about us is that we are in Jesus we're one with him his experience is ours Jesus died to sin on the cross we can die to sin we have a new nature that new nature can override the old nature to the extent that we look to Jesus and trust him and one day when Jesus appears we are going to be sinless just like Jesus because we'll be glorified we will actually share his glory and he's saying all this is true therefore we should live like this and so what he's saying basically is you're born again this is how you live born again this is the nitty-gritty day-to-day outworking and what he says put to death therefore whatever belongs to your earthly nature because remember that spider he's living at the bottom of the pond he's living in water but the water is not the essence of his life the essence of his life is the air that comes from above the water and so the point is that what Paul is saying here is you don't live according to the world you don't live according to the environment in which you're in we live according to the source of our life which comes from heaven itself says therefore I mean that little spider it doesn't live like a fish doesn't eat like a fish doesn't swim like a fish because it's not a fish it's 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 a land creature that's been specially adapted to live in a different environment now therefore we are not to live like non-christians because non-christians are of the world 
non-Christians are, as Jesus said, of their father the devil. That was, that was us once, but not now. Now we're children of God. So therefore he says, look, don't, don't live in that sort of way. He says, put to death, therefore. Um, down in verse 8, he says, you must rid yourselves of such things. And then down um, in verse 9, he says, since you have taken off the old self with its practices. And so what Paul is saying, look, that new life is there. It's in us. Jesus lives in us. And therefore it is possible for us to say no to our sinful natures. Not, not completely, not 100%. That will come when eventually we're glorified with Jesus. But we can substantially say no to our sinful nature. And he, he gives examples in verse 5. He says, right, now among the things that you've got to put to death, you know, that are not to be true of us, all right, is immorality. I mean, sexual immorality is just one of the hallmarks of the world in rebellion against God. Impurity, lust, evil desires. So immediately there's something that we know is true of us in our hearts. There can be a standing against these things. I mean, there can certainly be a complete victory over actual immorality. There should never, ever be. Uh, you know, there is, you know, sort of like, should never be sexual immorality amongst believers. I mean, that is inexcusable and that. But the impurity and the lust in our hearts, there can be a standing against it. That needn't be the whole truth of us. And where we fall, there can be a repentance, a turning away from it. He talks about greed, which is idolatry. I mean, that, that sums up the world, isn't it? The, the I want. And it's interesting that, that Paul, whenever he talks about greed, warning against it, and greed is kind of the, it is the I want more. It's not the, you know, the praying, oh, oh Lord, if it's your will, may I have. This is the, the wanting it, the going out and the getting it and being dissatisfied if you haven't got it. And Paul always likens that to idolatry. And of course, in our Western civilization nowadays, I mean, we don't, uh, you know, we're not, you know, we don't bow down and worship totem poles and idols like that. But what we are more likely to be doing is to actually um, have maybe our cars or uh, our, our, our families, our high, I mean there's a hundred things that can actually be more important than God is to us. And these things might be um, legitimate of themselves, but anything, if it's in the place of God, um, it becomes an idol to us. And of course the great danger of greed, this was you know, part of in Jesus' teaching, the parable of the sower. And it's the warning that there are those who kind of fall away from the Lord I mean, you know, some years into following him, they, 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 they bear a certain amount of fruit, but then they fall away. Why? The love of money and the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches. It's when they get tied up in things, you know, when they better themselves, and that might be no problem with that at all, but the money takes over, their lifestyle changes, and it changes, and that becomes what matters to them and therefore they fall away from the Lord. There's that thing, and Paul says, no, put off greed. Put off greed, that's not part of where we come up against greed in our hearts, we stand against it, we put it away, we put it to death. 
and he, he, he goes on to other things and he says you must put such things as these away and he goes into what you might call a different category um, and, and, and he, he deals now he says anger rage malice slander filthy language and these are all the things that where you get this there's no unity these are the things that rip the body of Christ apart these are the things where Satan gets in and if people give in to it you get Christians set against Christian you get unforgiveness you get bitterness you get people hating other people and, and that's the exact opposite that is not what God is like that is not you know what we are called to and so we must make sure that we do that that we, we rid ourselves of these things rage, malice, slander we've got to get shot of it got to be in repentance of it be praying that the Lord will deliver us and doing whatever we can to stand against these things uh, filthy language I mean at the end of the day it's up to us isn't it filthy language we use it or we don't it's a decision to make and then he says do not lie to each other I mean God is the one true God Jesus said I am the way the truth and the life the Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth and Jesus said by the truth you will be set free and Satan is the father of lies and whenever dishonesty whenever lying comes out of our lips there we're, we're, we're putting ourselves as it were right back under Satan's domain and we're living as the world lives like the spider you know sort of like deciding to live like a fish now the problem is if the spider does that it's going to drown and we all know what it is, don't we? Sometimes we just end up drowning in our sinfulness because we're giving into it rather than looking to the Lord all the time to be setting us free. And he says, the reason that you, you put all these things away, he says, is because you have taken off the old self with its practices and put on the new self. This is the language of changing clothes you know like you might come in from work and you put off your dirty take all your dirty clothes off put a nice fresh set of clothes on well that that's the picture here that we take off the old nature we put that away it's dirty but we put on the new self that god has given us and and he says that all the time this new self and this is the nature we got when we were born again this is what being born again was all about the moment we believed in jesus we received a divine nature that was born in us through the power of the Holy Spirit. We were made exactly like Jesus. We were completely like our father Satan. We then received, when we were born again, a nature that is completely like our new father, like God. That nature cannot sin. Our old nature can only sin. And what Paul's saying, up until the point when we're glorified, they're both in there. And oh boy, don't we know it. I know that the old Beresford, that natural Beresford, who would have been if he'd never come to Jesus, I know he's still there. But I know that the new Beresford is there as well. And I, I know that at the end of the day, I can be living in the old, or I can be living in the new. And what Paul's saying is, no. You live in the new nature all the time, putting off the old nature through repentance. And, uh, and he says that this, this new nature is being renewed 
in knowledge in the image of its creator and it's it's like our our new nature we can nurture it as it were we can make it grow we know don't we that if we indulge our you know sort of like our sinfulness that the our old nature hits back and it starts to grow doesn't it well in the same way the new nature we can cultivate it and we cultivate it in knowledge through the truth of the bible um in the image of its creator spending time with the lord in prayer the various ways that we can cultivate our new nature to the detriment of the old nature or we can live in such a way that we keep feeding the old nature and it's the new nature that suffers all the time that decision is ours and yet the point is can you see that to follow the lord to be christians what he's wanting for us is that all these these characteristics of the old nature all these sins that are in our hearts are put away and as we're going to see shortly and that brings unity in our lives together and that's the exact opposite to what the world is like you know sinfulness and and the world brings division and and, and people at each other's throats and and you know people putting themselves before everybody else but here we're going to see that as this life is cultivated it it brings peace and it's at this point where paul says like here there's no greek or jew uh there's no circumcised or uncircumcised no barbarian barbarians were what the greeks basically thought of as anyone who wasn't a greek and they looked down on them as being uncivilized rogues uh scythians were was seen as being like you know kind of like your rebel rousers and you know your drunkards and your right brute beasts as it were you know i mean similar to the uh, similar to the way that the english view the scots right <laughs> no and and the scythians it was kind of a byword of the time and and then slave or free and what paul is saying look regardless of our backgrounds now because we know jesus because we're part of the church here there is no room whatsoever for prejudice so the point is that we look upon each other as equals so obviously there would be no room for racial prejudice greek and jew there would be no no room for uh, cultural or class distinction prejudice uh, there, there's no room for intellectual snobbery you see what i mean everyone is viewed as a unique individual in the lord and what binds us together is that we're family now so there's no room for prejudice in the body of christ regardless what sort it is whether it's racial or intellectual snobbery cultural or whatever and then he says therefore and now this is the other side to it he's told us what we're not to um you know to be doing malice hatred and anger blah 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 but he says therefore as god's chosen people holy and dearly loved you see the point is we're holy because we have that new nature we are holy before god we wouldn't get to heaven if we weren't but what paul is saying look you are holy so act holy be what you are stop being what you aren't anymore children of the devil and start being what you actually are children of god so we are holy and dearly loved god dearly loves us you know and he loves us whether we're living right or not 
God's, God's love, he's not one of these parents who kind of like, he loves us if we're being good and he doesn't love us if we're being bad. He loves us whether we're being good or bad. And that's the point. It's because he loves us, our obedience to him is not the obedience of, well, okay, well, if we don't obey him, we might yet end up in hell or something. It's not an obedience based on the fear of judgment. It's the obedience based on he loves us. Therefore, let's love him back. It's the response of love. And Paul says, therefore, as God's chosen people, clothe yourselves. Here we are back to the old nature, the new nature. Take off the old nature, undress, put it in the bin, you know, the wash bin, and clothe yourselves with the new nature. And what is it? We've seen the old nature is rage, malice, slander, blah, blah, blah. He says, clothe yourselves with compassion. Compassion is when you draw alongside people in sympathy. Kindness. Now, malice is when you want bad things to happen to people. Kindness is when you want good things to happen to people. Humility. Slander is when you want to do people down to make yourself look good. Humility is when you put others first. Never mind about yourself. Elsewhere, Paul says, you know, sort of like, uh, you know, consider others before yourselves. Consider them to be better than you. Think of it that other people are more important to you. That's humility. Jesus thought we were more important than he was. And yet he was God. And he thought we were more important than he was. So he gave up his life so we didn't have to lose ours. That's humility. He says gentleness. Rage isn't gentle. Rage gets you on the floor and stamps on your face. That's what the anger of our hearts does. Whether you end up actually doing it verbally, that's what anger and rage in our hearts towards people, that's what it does. It tramples. It wants to destroy. Here, gentleness. And he says, and patience. Put on patience. And uh, we need that with each other. It's the opposite of impatience, isn't it? The, the old nature is impatient. Jesus is patient with us. And he says, bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. If we're not forgiving each other all the time, because, I mean, we're always going to be failing each other. You know, I mean, one of the greatest, you know, sort of like things that, uh, you know, com- comes between Christians is often just the, the quite simple daily process of when people get up your nose. Well, we've got to learn not to let people get up our nose. Because at the end of the day, what any one person might be doing might be a little bit annoying, it might be a little bit quirky or whatever. But the problem is, if it's getting up my nose to the extent that my relationship with you is affected, I've got a far bigger problem than whatever it is in you that's getting up my nose. Bear with one another. It doesn't mean there's never correction. We're going to see that in a moment. But we don't, you know, bear one another, you know, rather than, than all the time grating against each other whatever grievances you have against one another forgive now here's not when someone's just getting up because at, at, at the end of the day sometimes people's hairstyle can get up your nose I mean we all know the sinfulness of our hearts so we can end up irritated at things and if you look at them there's nothing wrong in that it's just that it irritates us here a grievance here he's saying okay you've actually been sinned against forgive it Hey, there may be a time for correction, but forgive it. 
you know and whenever you know this thing is well I've I've been wronged and I want my power to flesh that's that that's wrong that that's not the way it should be and even if there does need to be a correction it's never because anyone wants a pound of flesh if there's correction it's for the benefit of the person who's corrected he says forgive as the Lord forgave you now the point is it doesn't matter whatever sin someone might commit against me whatever the the biggest sin that you can think of that someone sins against me all right is tiny compared to the sinfulness of my heart that Jesus has forgiven me I mean hence Jesus's parable you know about the bloke who he owed the king a couple of million pounds and the king let him off the debt and then he goes out and throttles a fiver out of somebody that they owned him and I mean you know sort of like you know if you sin against me that's a fiver compared to the million quid that God's forgiven me that's the basis of forgiveness how can we hold unforgiveness in our heart against somebody when it's not possible that any one person could sin against you anything like the sin that you've committed against God that he's forgiven that's the basis of forgiveness and then he says over all these virtues put on love which binds them all together in perfect unity and that's that's fellowship life together that's what the new nature can give us and that is all the time what the Lord is working in us bringing us to and then he goes on he says let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts since as members of one body you were called to peace and and this is where he's tying up that if you're at peace with God in your own heart then you will be at peace with others they might not be at peace with you but that's not your problem if we're at peace with God in our own hearts we will by definition be at peace with other people even if they're waging World War 3 against us we will be at peace with them and that's the key to it and whenever we're not at peace with others the problem lies in our relationship with God because to not be at peace with others is to have some kind of grievance some kind of resentment you know sort of like something that makes you be wanting the worst for them rather than the best for them and that that's sin now if if if, if that's in my heart towards somebody well therefore if i repent of that sin and i'm back at peace with god then i'm going to be at peace with them and as i say even if they may be being not very nice to me this is the point if we're at peace with god we're going to be at peace with others even if they are not at peace with us and here's the point he says since you were called to peace and the the thing is that in our in our hearts because mankind is at war with god he ends up at war with his fellow human beings and that is where wars come from that's why you get wars in this world james says that in his letter where where do wars come from and he says it comes from your desires raging in your heart 
And so whenever you see someone, you know, sort of like, you know, sort of a, you know, sort of like, you know, doing a Mr. Angry against other people, whenever we're doing a Mr. Angry against other people, in actual fact, it's because we're a Mr. Angry against God. And if we could come to peace with God, and if we could deal with that anger in our own hearts, well then obviously we're not going to be at war with other people, even if, again I say, they might be at war with us. And then he slips this in, and this is so important, because he keeps slipping this in, he's going to see, and be thankful. And be thankful. In Romans, in the first couple of chapters of Romans, Paul, what he does is he traces the development of mankind falling, you know, falling away from God and turning against him. You know, and there's a development of events. And what it ends up is that when man rejects God, he eventually ends up worshipping the creation. He rejects the creator, but man has to worship something, it's his nature. So he worships the creation, be it idols or whatever. But when Paul traces, and we'll see this when we get to it in the Bible survey, but when he traces the decline of man falling away from God, the first thing he mentions is, they cease to give thanks. They cease to give thanks. The very first stage of any falling away in our hearts. Now, no Christian ever has to fall away. Never. There is never an excuse for falling away. But every Christian has the seeds every now and then growing in their hearts all the time. And we have to fight them. And the first seeds of falling away from God is when we cease to give thanks. And we know that, don't we? Because if we stop giving thanks, we grow discontented. And the moment we grow discontented, what happens? Who are we thinking about more than anyone or anything else? Me. And why did man fall away from God anyway? Well, because Adam and Eve were thinking about themselves more than they were thinking about their Creator. And they ceased to give thanks. If Eve had kept thanking the Lord, she wouldn't have fallen for what Satan did. If Adam had kept thanking the Lord, he wouldn't have fought, you know, fooled for Eve, fallen for Eve, handing him the fruit. So Paul says, and be thankful, all the time be thankful. And I know in my own heart that if I start being thankful again, which is what I ought to be, there, there's all manner of sinful things that go on in my heart and my mind, which they're calmed, almost like an anaesthetic. You know, I, I, I mean, sometimes it's like if you think of the cross, like you know, sort of a, you know, sort of like uh, you know, treatment for cancer when they do the old radiation. You now, and the radiation burns the cancer; it shrivels up. Well, that's what the cross is like for sin. And I know that there are times when there's all, all manner of horrible things going on in me. And if I come to the Lord and if I'm thankful, and if I remember all His blessings to me. That they, they, they start shriveling up. See, be thankful. It, it, it just it covers so many things, and uh, so the moment we stop being thankful, little warning lights should go on. And and then Paul in verse sixteen, he he he, he did well. I'll read it. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another. Admonish means to correct, to tell off. We tell each other off if necessary, in love, in love, obviously. I mean, not kind of, you know, sort of like, you know, bashing people over the head with, 
negative you know sort of like correction to do them down but there, there's a place and and it is one another it's not it's not just for church leaders to tell plebs off or anything like that church leaders are plebs as well so teach and admonish one another with all wisdom so anytime you correct make sure it's the wisdom of god and not just because you've got an axe to grind or anything and as you sing psalms hymns and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to god so what have we got here that the word of christ dwelling you richly so that's keep filling up on the word of god teach each other correct each other and do this with all wisdom as you sing psalms hymns and spiritual songs what's that well now he's talking about the worship when the church comes together for worship so here is our sundays and isn't it interesting that Paul deals with this now? Because right in the middle of living the Christian life, not being angry, not you know, not resenting each other, not being impatient, all, all this stuff, alright, then he starts talking about the worship time in the church. And it's 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 so important because we've got to realise that to come and worship God all right when we're not living this life before him it's a bit meaningless to him i mean you know sort of like the classic you know like the legendary thing in this country is on a sunday morning isn't it that you know mum and dad get to church with the kids there's been a blazing row in the car on the way all right the kids get shouted at mum and dad are shouting at each other in they go first him hands in the air smiles on their faces that's that's tosh that's that's ridiculous jesus told a parable didn't he that you know he said look when you bring your gift at the altar all right here's your gift you're bringing your worship to god he says if your brother has anything against you now what he's meaning there i.e if you've sinned against your brother he says leave leave the gift at the altar and first go and reconcile yourself to your brother I mean, it's a nonsense to think that we can worship God, that somehow worship is separate from the life we live. You know, and the idea of, you know, mum and dad coming into worship and they've been yelling at the kids in the car and each other and, and there's just been tension and friction and anger and disrespect. And I mean, it's crazy to then think that one can go then go into worship without all that being put right first. I mean, that's when we draw a kind of like a distinction between worship and, and, and the way we live. I mean, that that's a divide that, that, that the Bible knows nothing of. And isn't it interesting in another place in Scripture when Paul deals with worship, it's um, in Romans chapter 12. And that's when he talks. Well, it's, I'll, I'll actually read it to you because it's just so so pertinent. Um, but in Romans chapter twelve, and um, uh, he says, "Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God." This is your spiritual act of worship do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world well that's all the you know get rid of malice and all that that he's been done he says do not conform any longer to that but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that's exactly what he's been saying in colossians and he says right so what actually is your spiritual worship he says it is it's leading a holy life that is our spiritual worship 
and if we come together on the Sundays for worship and they're, you know, sort of like he's talking about the body ministry of the worship in the church, that is simply another aspect of the larger worship, which is the way we live day by day. And that's how the Bible sees worship, you know. And the point is, if we come along on a Sunday and, you know, sort of like Saturday you know, has been a day of sinning against people and we haven't put it right, and then Monday is us carrying on sinning against these people and we still haven't put it right, then to think that Sunday, sandwiched in the middle, was anything to do with worship is a ridiculous idea. It's nothing to do with worship. Our worship of God vis-a-vis when we come together for our sung worship and our sharing together, that is only valid if our lives, either side of the worship, are what Paul's talking about here. You know, and to think that we can come and worship with undealt with sin in our hearts, it's crazy. I mean, you know, the Bible is not super spiritual. It's very, very nitty-gritty and, uh, and, and down-to-earth on all this. And, and then he says, look, and whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus giving thanks, ah, there it is again, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Now then, look, whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Word or deed. Word. Well, whatever you're doing, phoning someone up, answering the phone, talking to someone at work, asking them to, you know, sort of like, oh, could you just, you know, sort of like do this for me, or, you know, what am I supposed to, you know, I mean, whatever communication you're having with anyone, word, deed, well, washing up, whatever, okay, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now, here's a test. Can you be ratty in the name of the Lord Jesus? Can you be impatient? in the name of the Lord Jesus. And as soon as we think of it like that, it's a nonsense. We were old crumbs. So the way I talk to people at work matters. It matters an awful lot. I mean, if I'm snappy, regardless, I mean, okay, I might feel dreadful, but put that to one side. If I'm snappy, you, I can't be snappy in the name of the Lord Jesus. <laughs> I mean, how can me being snappy with other people, for instance, glorify Jesus? It can't. That's not showing Jesus. That's showing me. And so here's the test. Whatever you do, do it in the name of Jesus. So, you know, sort of therefore, think, oh yeah, the way I am and the way and I know myself and when I get into that, oh yeah, crumbs. Yeah, and, and that's a good test. So we ought to be in every way so that it can be said, this was done in the name of the Lord Jesus. And we can know that Jesus would have given his stamp of approval to it. And at the same time, again, you've got this giving thanks or cause hurt to them and then having done that seeing them wince mission accomplished say oh thank you Lord that I hurt them couldn't do it could you it's ridiculous and so that is all the time the test and giving thanks and again I know that there are times when you know sort of like the mind start, you know maybe something has happened and it just maybe begins to bug you a little bit and you maybe start to get uncharitable thoughts towards somebody, it's just beginning. The seeds are growing. Now, at that point, if you keep going down that road, it will soon grow into a triffid, and it will eat you up. But if you get back, eyes back on the Lord, and start to give thanks to the Lord for all his blessings to you, 
that will melt our hearts and that will get our minds back on Jesus and again we'll find that it's the new nature that's coming out rather than the old nature now staying incredibly practical because up till now Paul's dealt with kind of you know like our relationships with people at large okay you know like in the church and blah 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 but now he homes it down on day-to-day family life and uh and this is tremendously important because remember that a church is only as strong as the families that go to make up the church and so therefore the quality of our fellowship together is going to depend on the quality of our family life whatever particular role we have um, in the family and so therefore now Paul deals look here is the order for family life this is God's blueprint for family life and so therefore this has to be being observed because if it isn't there won't be peace and if there's not peace in the families that make up the church there won't be peace in the church and we all know as well don't we that problems at home often the effect that they can have on us is that they cause problems with other people because we all know that if there are things not right in one area of our life they can maybe spill out in regards to others and it's very easy isn't it if for some reason you've got the raging hump with your wife or your husband or one of your children then there's every chance that having the raging hump with anyone will then spill out in how you then relate to other people who are nothing to do even with that circumstance you know so i mean hence sometimes like you know one can you know sort of like turn up and and you can know oh so and so is you know sort of like you, you can see that they're angry about something they're they're frazzled they're whatever and that spills out onto everyone and so therefore it's vitally important that home life family life which is after all where we spend most of our time is in a nitty-gritty way as the bible tells us that it ought to be and he says wives submit to your husbands as is fitting in the lord now this bit that we've got here is covered in more detail in ephesians it's like a parallel you know sort of uh, thing but um nevertheless it's it, it's here the colossians would have read ephesians as well because they were circular letters and so they'd have got the idea and it's interesting that whenever Paul comes on to deal with this, between husbands and wives, he always has wives submit to husbands before he deals with the way husbands ought to be with their wives. And the reason for that, I'm, I think, has simply got to be at the end of the day, a husband hasn't got a chance if his wife will not submit to him. So there's, there's one sense in which it begins with the wife submitting to her husband. If a wife will not do, you know, will not submit to her husband full stop, then, I mean, obviously, you know, sort of like there's no moving forwards at all. But nevertheless, you've got wives submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. And, uh, I mean, particularly we live today in an increasing uh, feminism within society. We're not dealing here with equal rights 
for women. The Bible has no problem whatsoever with equal rights for women. In fact, the Bible is the basis for giving women equal rights. I mean, the only religion that has ever given women equal rights is Christianity. This is nothing to do with equal rights. Husbands, men and women are equal before God. But the Bible teaches that the husband is the head of the wife in the same way that God the Father was the head of Jesus. Now then, God the Father is God, Jesus is God, they are equal. It's a functional thing. Jesus submitted to the Father, not because he was inferior to the Father, but simply as a functional thing. And so the wife submitting to the husband is nothing to do with saying that the wife is not equal to her husband. Men and women are equal before God. Of course they are. It's a functional thing. And so, therefore, you've got, you know, in order, you know, sort of like for, for, for life to be peaceful. Because remember, at the end of the day, you can't run a democracy on a committee with two people on it. Someone has got to have the casting vote. And that position has been given to the husband. And the wife ought to respect that and accept it. However, that puts a tremendous burden of responsibility on the husband. And any idea of the husband being the big boss, you know, and wife, he just sits down and shuts up and listens to what her husband says, and that's the end of the story, that could not be further from what the Bible teaches either. And the onus, the responsibility, in Ephesians, Paul says, that husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church, selflessly. Not being the big boss to get his own way, but being in charge of the family so that God's blessing can flow through and that everyone can uh, you know, be blessed by God. And it says, and do not be harsh with them. Yeah, it's no use being... I mean, <laughs> the last thing an unsubmissive wife needs is, is, is for her husband blowing his top. That will not make her any more submissive. And every, every wife who's ever spoken to me about it, you know, sort of, uh, you know, has always said, you know, that in, in their, their, their kind of journey from being unsubmissive to becoming submissive to their husband, the most unhelpful thing the husband ever did was try and bash them into submission. No, you love your wife into submission. That's what Jesus did. We love him because he first loved us. And then children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. And it's interesting, isn't it, that here in the New Testament letters, children are addressed. Children came under the gambit of teaching. Obviously, parents have to teach their children, but that's one of the reasons why on the Sundays children don't go out into a creche or something. We want them in there learning with the rest of us. And yet then it says, fathers, do not embitter your children or they'll become discouraged. So again, parents, they have authority over their children and shouldn't be frightened to use it. Of course not. But that authority is to be used for the benefit of the children. It's not, it's not there, you know, so that, you know, sort of like mum and dad can just fly at the children every time the children are getting on their nerves. That's not proper discipline and upbringing of children. And so here, the parents have a great responsibility in the way they exercise their authority over the children. And I think one of the important things, 
for parents and children. Obviously, Blinge and I are going to find this out for ourselves in time now. But is 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 parents who are able to say sorry to their children when they've sinned against their children? And I'm I'm sure there might be times when discipline has been administered and maybe was needed, but you just know I went over the top. My own anger got involved in that. Well, we've got to be big enough to be able to apologise to our children the same as we would apologise to one another or someone else if we blew our top at an adult or something. Uh, vitally important. And anyway, parents shouldn't be blowing their tops at their children. They should be disciplining their children. And I mean, it seems to me there's nothing worse than, uh, you know, than sort of like adults lashing out at children in anger and frustration. I mean, there may be a time to, you know, sort of like deliver a smack, even a hard smack, but not, not in the context of lashing out in anger and frustration. It's completely the wrong way to do it. All the time, whatever it's being, is being done, it's being done for the benefit of the child. And then Paul moves on to slaves and masters. Now, in the context of the early church, that would have still been in the household situation. Because, I mean, a lot of the households had slaves. Um, you mustn't think that this was slavery like you get in Roots. This wasn't the same type of slavery that was often inflicted on Africans, and shamefully in Britain's history as well. Um, it, wasn't, it wasn't like that. It was, I mean, there were abuses of it, but it was a bit more like upstairs, downstairs. It was a bit more like the Victorian living servants, where the family or, or, or the household could actually virtually become the slave's family. But I think that our application for this is more going to be attitude to work. And, and of course, what Paul is saying to the slaves is, look, be obedient to your master. Be obedient to your employer in the context of your job. And he's saying to do your job well, but not, not just when the boss is watching, you know, to curry favour, but he says to be doing it as to the Lord. So he says, look, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord. And that's, that's tremendously important. If something's worth doing, it's worth doing well. And so therefore, even if, uh, you know, maybe, you know, one has got a boss who isn't the best boss in the world, the point is, but well, still does one's job to the best of one's ability. And he says, since you know that you're receiving inheritance from the Lord as a reward, because regardless of whether your boss is watching or not, the Lord is watching. And whatever we do, he will reward us for faithful service to him and in regards to our employer. And he says, it is the Lord Christ you are serving. And so it's important to make sure that in regards to our employment life, see how comprehensive this is that there's a right attitude to the authority of the employer. Um, it's interesting, John the Baptist, when he was preaching to the Roman soldiers, he says, be content with your wages. Which I don't think means there's never a time to address, you know, maybe, you know, time for a rise. But what it does address is the grumbling discontent against an employer 
that leads to, to wrong feelings against them. That is wrong. Again, employees are to be towards employers respectful in the same way that wives ought to be the husbands, children ought to be the parents. It's that kind of relationship and it's important. But then Paul moves on, he says, Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair. So there's the responsibility. Anyone who is under you at work, whether you know someone who you know own company and you're the big boss, or whether you're a foreman in a factory, you have a responsibility to be treating those under you justly and fairly. And remember, Jesus said that the way that authority works in the world is that it's lording it over people, chucking your weight around making sure that they don't forget that you're the boss and they're the pleb. Well, that, that's not how Christians ought to be. And so even if there may be times when you, you are the boss and you have to exert your authority, that's no problem at all. But it must always be done with absolute respect, righteousness and fairness towards those under your authority. And he says the reason because you know that you also have a master in heaven. And that should forever stop us getting too big for our boots. I mean, at the end of the day, I mean, take the biggest multinational corporation in the world. Take its chairman. Whether he knows it or not, and one day he will find out that he has a master in heaven as well. And he will find out that though the head of the biggest multinational corporation in the world, he's got a master in heaven who's a lot bigger than him than he was bigger than, say, for instance, the lowest worker, the guy who cleaned the toilets in one of the factory outlets or something. Uh, Tony Blair may be an incredibly powerful boss, the prime minister, but he has a master in heaven. Now, whether he knows it or not now, he will do one day. The President of the United States. doesn't matter how big you are in the world's eyes. You have a master in heaven. And his bigness to the biggest boss in this world is like looking at the difference between a flea arguing with an amoeba and then an elephant coming along to settle the dispute. And all of us will meet our master. That's the relationship. And then he winds up this section and he says, devote yourselves to prayer. Now we're back to the spider, aren't we? Because prayer is one of the main ways that we go up and get that bubble of air and bring it back down. Because every time we pray, that is our trip to heaven, as it were. That is how we get to the top of the pond and get the air and pull it back down so we can live off of it. Prayer. Prayer, more than anything else, is that which brings the life of God down to us here. Spending time with the Lord in prayer. And he says, being watchful, that, that's alert. We're never ultimately off duty. And thankful. There it is again. Thankful. It's always there. Be thankful. And he says, devote yourself to prayer. It's an act of will. If 
you devote yourself to something, I mean, it can be. I mean, you can devote yourself to the woman you love and you can scarce help yourself doing it because all the love flying around all over the place. But a soldier will devote himself to his post. And it might be the post that he wanted least. But a good soldier will devote himself to his duty, even though he has no feelings for it. He might think, well, all I want is to get out of here. So devotion, ultimately, is an act of the will. It's something we do because God wants us to do it. And so we must pray. And Paul says, and while you're praying, he says, pray for me. I need your prayer. We've got to pray for each other. You need my prayers. I need your prayers. That's the way it's got to be. And he says to pray that he'll be able to proclaim the gospel as he should. And then he says, be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. So we've seen relationships in the church. We've seen relationships in our family life individually bearing in mind the whole time we as a church are an extended family but we can only be as strong as an extended family in the Lord as our individual family lives at home and if, the, if, 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 if they're a shambles <laughs> then that isn't going to enable the church to be in the order you know to be in order in the way that God wants it to be. But now he's dealing with outsiders, unbelievers. And he says, be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. Well, I mean, it kind of like should go without saying, but we need to be reminded. We are the only Bible that most unbelievers are ever going to read. Uh, remember when Paul wrote to the Corinthians, he says, look, you are the letter that we've written he said, it's written on your hearts. You know, we are walking epistles. Here, we are reading the Bible. We're believers. Sometimes unbelievers pick the Bible up and they read it. Countless people have become Christians because of what the Gideons do. Put a Bible in every hotel and public place in the world. And there are many, they pick the Bible up, they read it and they become Christians. But most people become Christians not because they've read the Bible, but because they've read other Christians. But isn't it tragic to think that there are unbelievers who are reading out of order Christians? And they're thinking, oh, I don't want to be like them. Can't see any different to me. And so Paul says, be wise in the way you act towards, out, you know, act towards outsiders. Unbelievers are going to read us and they're going to read one of two things. New nature and they're going to see the gospel in us. Or they're going to see the old nature and they're going to say hypocrite. So be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace seasoned with salt and, and salt it, it brings out the flavour makes things taste nice that otherwise wouldn't and also it's a preservative it stops the rot from spreading and 
in unbelievers dealings with us in whatever way what they should do is that they should experience that their rot stops there it doesn't get into us and in fact quite the contrary there's something about us that holds back the rot in them a little bit that's the difference but if when we're with unbelievers we suddenly start to become like them in the wrong way I mean any way you can be like them use it obviously you know I mean if unbelievers like football you get in there I mean that's that that's great that's one of the you know one of the million things you can use to build a relationship that but what I'm talking about unbelievers sinful bits shouldn't be rubbing off onto us and they should actually find that maybe they're even cleansed a little bit in our presence if only because as long as they're with us they're not going to maybe be doing what they would have been doing otherwise because they'll just know that there's i'm not talking about you know sort of like you know taking a you know sort of like rebuking unbelievers or that's not what i'm talking about i'm talking about just our mere presence because they've observed our lives and know that we're different and then he says so that you may know how to answer everyone and of course there one's back to uh, you know, kind of let the word of Christ well in, dwell in you richly. Well, I mean, unbelievers have questions. Now, obviously, they're going to ask us loads of questions that we might have to go and find the answer out. I mean, that's that's fair enough. And we're not, you know, it's no problem if we can't answer all their questions. Of course not. But the point is that we ought to be doing whatever we can so that we, we can answer them, that, you know, that, that we are growing in the knowledge of the Lord so that any questions they do have that we can try and help them sort out and, and use that to tell them about the Lord and so with with Colossians 3 it's it's incredibly nitty-gritty and it's kind of Paul saying right okay because of everything that Jesus has done this is how we ought to be living not perfectly of course not but substantially and increasingly but not perfectly no of course not but nevertheless, the standard is high. And I think that in going through the Bible, we've got to be honest and say, I think, two things. That God does actually expect us to be holier than we actually manage to be. I think that's clear from the Bible. And secondly, I'd say it's clear from the Bible as well, that we're actually going to be as holy as we want to be. And, and I think that needs to be said as well. And so because of everything that Jesus has done for us, and because we have the power of the Holy Spirit, because of everything that God has worked into us, this is the bit, and if you cross-reference with Philippians, when Paul says, work out your own salvation because it is God who is at work in you. And so this is our bit. This is the down-to-us bit. Not in our own strength. The Lord has provided the power. And we already have it. We already have everything we need for this. And so, therefore, we've got to make sure that we're going for it. When we fail, we repent. We put that right. We pick ourselves up, we get on with it. But here we've got, this is Paul saying, therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved. This is how we ought to be.
Well, I'll finish there.